Uh, do you feel your, your mortality? Uh, live conscious that your life will end in death. Death so awful, so alien to the life we live, the life we cherish, and yet so unremarkable because we all die. Not everyone does pay tax, but death is what we all have in common. As Ecclesiastes observes, death is the destiny of everyone, so no one's death is in the final analysis a surprise or particularly special. Yet here we are gathering to remember a death, the death of Jesus almost 2,000 years ago, and it wasn't a death that was in the eyes of people at that time particularly gallant or noble. In fact, it was the opposite. It was a shameful death, the death of rebels and criminals on a cross, a death designed to demonstrate their powerlessness and humiliation before an all-powerful Rome, a death better forgotten. Just as we might seek to blot out the last months and days of a beloved parent or spouse whose body has decayed before our eyes with terminal dementia or cancer, blot out that memory to be able to remember the person that was before their end, their warmth and love, their cheerful conversation and interest. But Christians don't blot out the death of Jesus. It stays front and centre in our memory of him. Now why? Why remember this cruel and shameful death? Well, part of the answer is found in the words Matthew and Mark record Jesus as saying from the cross on which he hangs as his life ebbs away. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As you've heard, this is the beginning of Psalm 22. Words which express for Jesus both his consciousness of who he is and his understanding of what he is experiencing on the cross. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David, Israel's greatest king or anointed one. The psalm speaks of his experience, the experience of the anointed one or Christ, both in his oppression by his enemies and his deliverance by his God. You see, even on the cross, Jesus does not back down from his claim to be the Christ, the Son of God. His cry says the words of this psalm, this psalm are words that are his to use, for they are the words of the Christ of God's King, and he is that King. Nor does he, even in his pain, waver in his trust in God. My God, he cries the God whom he has trusted from his birth is still his God. Yet his faithfulness makes his experience even more puzzling, even less right. He says he is God forsaken. Now that's a statement with which his enemies, those mocking him as he dies, would certainly agree. The Christ, the Son of God in Psalm 2, the Christ they're looking forward to is a conqueror. But Jesus has been clearly conquered by his enemies. Oh, the Christ is a deliverer of the godly. You heard it, one who saves, but he cannot save himself. The Christ is blessed by God, but Jesus is cursed. For the Jewish law says everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. 
Oh, the Christ is one whom God will deliver and exalt, as even Psalm 22 suggests. But Jesus is left hanging there. What can explain for the onlookers his humiliation? Well, only that he's been abandoned by God, left to, given up to, the consequences of his blasphemous claim to be the Christ, the Son of God. But Jesus' cry is not just a commentary on his external circumstances. It is more. It is an expression of his felt reality, an expression of his consciousness of God his Father's absence, absence in his need, that he has been abandoned. For there is no rescue as there was for Isaac on the mountain of Moriah. There is no deliverance from death as there was for David repeatedly. He is dying, the faithful one, God forsaken. There is a horror here. Jesus from birth has been the son of God and throughout his life has been faithful to his father. The father at his baptism and on the mountain declared, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And Jesus has said in Matthew 11 that it is the father alone who knows, truly knows the son, just as the son knows the father. From his birth, Jesus has known himself to be known and loved by the father. More, Jesus is the incarnate son, the son of God known and loved by the father from eternity with a love of infinite depth and faithfulness, a love that has shared all things from eternity. The one who, in John's words, is at the Father's side, is with God the Father always. He is the Son who loves the Father and was sent into the world to do what the Father commands and who even on the cross is fulfilling the Father's will. Not my, yours, but, not my will, but yours be done. He had prayed in the garden as he contemplated this death. But now on that cross, in that darkness, he knows he is God forsaken, abandoned to a death that a faithful, obedient son should never face, abandoned by one whose love he has always from before time known. So he cries, why, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Now we cannot guess at an answer. Only Jesus is a fit witness to his relationship with the Father. We can only find the answer in what Jesus has already taught of the purpose of his coming, the purpose of his death. When his disciples were arguing about greatness, the Lord had said the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said his death would be the price paid to set people free from imprisonment by sin and death. And less than 24 hours before this, he is taught that his death, his blood poured out, would bring forgiveness of sins for many and include them in the new covenant with God. And both these statements of the purpose, the goal of his death, Take us back to the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus said he must fulfil, in particular to Isaiah 53. You see, both ransom 
Both the ransom and the forgiveness, our Lord said, are for many. And many is how those who would benefit from the work of God's servant in Isaiah 53 are described. The servant is said to bear the sin of many. The Lord Jesus knew he is God's promised servant and that on the cross doing God's will he is dying for many. And it is in Isaiah's words that we see why Jesus, to achieve the goal of his death, our forgiveness and freedom, experienced God-forsakenness on the cross. Let me read Isaiah 53 to you. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand after he has suffered he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus on the cross, God's word said, is bearing our sin. He is enduring the punishment our sins deserve, giving up his life as an offering for sin. And that is why hanging there, Jesus is God forsaken. Now why do I say that? Think for a minute of sin, our sin, and what it deserves. And let's think of the first sin. Of Adam and Eve, for in its isolation, before the compounding effect of our many sins, we can see things clearly there, the character and consequences of sin. 
Now that first sin was ungrateful disobedience that sprang from disbelief, the rebellion of the creature who thought they knew better against their creator's rule by his word. Remember God had said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But Adam and Eve believed the lie that God was the liar who would not do what he said. You will not die, the serpent said. And they believed the serpent and ate, not out of need, for they could eat from all the other trees in the garden, but out of desire to be like God, to rule their own lives by their own wisdom. We see that. Eve had measured her action by her own judgment of what would enhance her life, saw that the fruit was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise, gave her everything she thought she needed for a satisfying life, measured by her own wisdom, not the word of the God who made her and provided for all her needs. She decided that she was a better judge of what was good for her and for Adam than God. And that is all our sin, ungrateful disobedience that springs from a desire, a love for something other than God, that doesn't believe God will keep his word, for he has said the wages of sin is death. And a determination to reckon ourselves better judges of what is right for us than the God who made us. God has said, don't lie, but we think lying will serve our purposes better than faithfulness to God. God has said, don't hate others, but that's the feeling we enjoy and nurture in our hearts and tell ourselves it's right we pursue sexual satisfaction outside the marriage of a man and a woman, for we tell ourselves we are better judges of what is good for us than our creator God. We set our desire on created things, fame, money and power and not on loving God. All our sin is ungrateful disobedience that has its roots in disbelief of God's word and a conviction that we rule our lives better than God. Though God is the almighty or wise creator and we are frail and finite. And our sin has consequences, we see here. Eating the fruit seems such a small thing, doesn't it? Who was hurt by it? Yet it brought shame that made Adam and Eve want to hide from God. And then a separation from God's presence and the fullness of his good provision, driven from the garden, a separation we cannot reverse for rebels. Those who always want to substitute their rule for God's cannot be at peace with God, will always be at war with him, will always feel his holy anger and so can never live in his presence. And then God's judgment of death. Dust you are and to dust you shall return. The separation made permanent. For death is a state which is alien to God who has life in himself. Death can have no place in his presence. You see, to bear the sins of many, to receive in our, in our place the punishment our sins deserve, separation and death, is to be God-forsaken. That is what Jesus is enduring on the cross. And we can barely imagine the reality, the disruption of eternal love, an eternal and infinite love. 
You see, the significance of the death of Jesus is not measured in time, in days. It is measured by the relationship it disrupts, by the God-forsakenness of the Son of God. Jesus is God-forsaken to achieve the purpose of his death, our freedom and forgiveness, by suffering in our place what our sins deserve. But that does not fully answer the why. Why have you forsaken me? The question why someone is doing something can be answered, yes, by talking about what they want to achieve, but it can also be answered by talking about their motive, what has prompted them to want to achieve that goal. A trivial example, if over this weekend, maybe even tomorrow, I give the cashier $10 and you ask why I could say to buy chocolate, but I could also answer by referring to what's driving me to buy the chocolate because I'm hungry. Now, both would be true. Jesus suffers and dies on that cross, endures this God-forsakenness, not because he deserves it, as his enemies and mockers claimed. He's doing there the Father's will. We saw that in the garden again. Not my will, but yours be done, he prayed to the Father. We see it in the description of the servant's work. We've heard the Lord has laid on him the iniquity for us all, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. This death, this God-forsakenness, is the Father's will. Why? It is God's purpose to save sinners, the many, because he is merciful and compassionate. As John's Gospel says, it's because God loves the world that he gives his only Son to give life to all who believe in him. God who is rich in mercy, writes Paul, out of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive, we who believe in Christ, alive with Christ. God loves those who deserve his wrath, the unlovely, the foolishly proud creatures who have disbelieved and disobeyed, that is us. And in the end, there is no answer to that terrible why beyond love and no cause for this love outside God himself. The love of God for the world that would bear the cost of saving and saving completely by offering his son on the cross, a sacrifice sufficient, John says, to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifices for the sins of the whole world, the love of God for the world that wills to bear the cost in himself in the relationship of the Father and the Son is the answer to the why. And because of that gracious love of God, the death we remember is a death that changes everything changes the way we see our world and therefore live in it, changes our thinking about God, changes our present and our future, changes everything for those who believe the gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, was buried and on the third day was raised to life. This death does change the way we see our world. It is revealed as the world the good God rules. Not human greed and pride and folly. A world where what seems so dark, so unbearably sad, 
such as the mocking and crushing of the one who lived in truth and love. This world now can become in God's hands a place of light and joy, a world where God's determination to bless in the overflow of his love will triumph and lies and hate and death, the lies and hate and death we see in the violence of our world today that threatens again and again the destruction of all, we see that will not have the last world, that this is a world we know will one day be set free from decay and futility. This death changes the way we see our world and it changes our thinking about God. His rule is no longer a threat to our fallen true humanity, but the order in which it flourishes to be welcomed, not resented. His apparent silence that we can experience, and it is silence, for Christ's cry receives no answer. But that's not an absence or abandonment. That silence is the prospering of his purposes of love for Christ and for us. Oh, his order-restoring justice, which we can fear, is now known to be always accompanied with mercy for the repentant, his proper work if we turn to him. For he longs to save, he gives his son to save. In Christ's death, God is known as the God we can draw near to, not the God we should flee from. And this death changes believers' present and future, our life and death. You see, Jesus is God-forsaken, so we forgiven would never be. So that we would be able to say with the apostle that we're convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Lord is God forsaken so that those who trust him will never be. And our Lord is humiliated so we could be exalted as God's sons and daughters no matter what shame we bear in this life. He is dying so we would live, dying so that when our death comes, as it will, we can say to depart and be with Christ is better by far. And no, we will be not separated from God as our Lord was on the cross, but with the Lord forever. In a world of death, where no one's death should surprise us, this is a death worth remembering, always, with great thankfulness and praise for the one who died and the Father who sent him to the cross. Praise for their love and faithfulness, might and wisdom. Praise for the only God, Father, Son and Spirit, in whom alone is salvation for all the world. The death that always remembered is the basis for our trusting God in our own suffering and in our struggle to live lives of love and truth as followers of a crucified Saviour in a world that still practices lies and hate. And the foundation of confident love, confident hope, that having given his Son for us, our Father will certainly give us all things as he has promised us and we will never be separated from his love.
So I give thanks and praise. For when we hear our Lord's cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can actually answer the question, taught by God with grateful love. We can say, Lord, it was for us and it was for love. 